Hello and welcome to the Fight Sites MMA podcast. I am at Gallo, the wrestling guy. Today we're going to talk about how Robert Whittaker is unwrestleable and Kevin Holland is the most wrestleable. This is episode 44. I'm joined as always by Sriram, who's here to say how Bobby Knuckles is about to kick Kelvin Gastelum's head off. Hello, Sriram. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, I bought it completely. Um, yes, this is in fact at Gallo. Um, he... Sounds very weird because he just had a second COVID vaccine and he has not been replaced by host of Tangri Dome, uh, Tuman Tushinov. So, uh, yeah, how are you doing, Tuman? Uh, <laughs> you blew it! You blew my cover! It... What cover? I've heard it. I was, uh, it was a perfect disguise. I said, I've, I said I've it done... was not you. I don't know what else <laughs> you want from me. Uh, all right, that's enough horseplay for the time being, I think. Yeah. It's called World Hi, Miggy. Yeah. Hi, <laughs> Miggy, in case you didn't notice. <laughs> I host Ingridome on the Combat Sports News Recap. Uh, so, as uh, Sriam had said, Ed has the post-vaccine sick, so he's asked me to step in for today. I mean, hopefully I won't set anything on fire while, while he's gone, either figuratively or literally. So, um, I don't know. What should we start with? Uh... Maybe you got anything to say about last week's card, because I sure as fuck don't. <laughs> yeah, Marvin Vittori got a very Marvin Vittori win. Uh, this is probably just going to be a whole thing on that card. There isn't a ton. Um, Kevin Holland did his Kevin Holland things a little bit more enthusiastically than we're used to seeing Kevin Holland do those things. Um, he was you know, actually trying to play guard and throw up kicks and stuff, but uh, his wrestling is just not very good. Um, we had a commentary on the Patreon, so pay $3 and you'll be able to see that, uh, for both that fight and Arnold Allen versus C.D. Yusuf, which was much more interesting. Um, but Marvin Vittori was able to consistently, A, uh, force Holland out of position on the back foot and crack him, and B, just take him down on the fence over and over and over and over and over. Um, nearly submit him a couple times, Holland just didn't have much of an answer. Uh, Vittori has moved to, like, number three in the rankings, off beating the number ten, which is incredibly bizarre. I still don't think Vittori is the guy to be beating someone like Darren Till, or even someone like a Jared Cannonier necessarily, but, uh, you know, activity is activity. Um, anything else I mean, on the card? Oh, go ahead. Uh, Ed has recorded a wrestling for MMA podcast, and he raised yeah. uh, an interesting point in that, like, uh, seeing as uh, this fight was basically Kevin Holland doing Kevin Holland things, but harder, and in this case, it doesn't mean, like, upping his activity or doing anything, like, interesting or trying to win, even. He just basically tried to push on Vittori's head and then prayed. And so uh, Ed has raised uh, the point of uh, whether Holland does it, whether Holland even deserves main card sports anymore. Like, he what the fuck doesn't. is he supposed to be? Like, why? <laughs> I mean, Holland's a consequence of middleweight just having, like, two great fighters, a couple good fighters, and everything else just being completely barren. Like, we saw in the co-main event, Featherweight still has, like, really functional, cogent fighters down at, like, number eight and number nine uh, of, like, even, they're not, like, guys who should be top five even. They're just genuine number eights, number nines, number tens uh, that are very good at fighting. So you can have, like, a surprising fight between two guys of that level uh, that's still, like, really worth watching. Middleweight doesn't really have that. Um, you could argue Vittori's even a consequence of that. He's just a little bit overranked, but you know he's someone who is able to turn a good deal of athleticism and knowing what he's good at uh, into competing with guys who are actually good in the rankings. So 
that's just why Holland gets these spots, right? Like he he has a high ranking spot in name, but also being number seven or eight at middleweight is kind of bad. Uh, it's way worse than being number seven or eight at welterweight or number seven or eight at featherweight or lightweight or bantamweight. It's just Kevin Holland gets those spots because he has the same number as people who do deserve those spots. Um, but yeah, he definitely doesn't deserve them. Uh, this was a fight where I, I think he did try to win a little bit more. Uh, we saw in the Derek Brunson fight, one of the weirdest things I've seen in a long time from a main event caliber competitor <laughs> uh, was um, Kevin Holland consistently putting on a body triangle from the bottom against Derek Brunson. <laughs> Uh, from guard, it wasn't like a back control thing. That would actually just make sense. Uh, he was yelling just... at Habib for the entirety of the fight instead of actually trying to win the fight. Yeah, that uh, was one thing. But also, like, he probably could have learned from Habib on bottom game, too. Just because he was like, he basically stapled Derek Brunson to himself for the entire fight for as long as he was on bottom. Uh, whereas here, he was, you know, kind of trying to kick off and wrestle out. He just wasn't good at it, which... As Ed mentioned in the live commentary, it's a lot more palatable to see. Like we, we've seen incompetence a lot uh, in MMA, and even like relative incompetence between like two good fighters, one's worse than the other. It's a lot rare and a lot more frustrating to see someone just not try. Uh, so Kevin yeah. Holland going from one to the other is good, but he should also not be in main events for the foreseeable future. Yeah, uh, well, yeah. At least the co-main was kind of decent. Like Arna Dalen yeah. uh, has managed to show some good stuff against Tadik Yusuf. Yeah, like, Arnold uh, Allen is... Uh, yeah, basically what I want to say that uh, he proved that uh, you can, in fact, move past the uh, stage of being British towards <laughs> the stage of being decent. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's weird. Because Arnold Allen, he's one of the weirder prospect cases I can remember. Where, like, yes, they were trying to get him into bigger spots, like Jeremy Stevens and Arnold Allen. There was, like, a booking with Mirsad Bektik at one point. So, like, every fight where it looked like he might be a little bit too raw to win, it just fell apart. And being British meant that he was only ever on UK cards until, like, the Gilbert Melendez fight. So, he was... It was closer to being, like, a Zaleski or a Luke or a Neil than someone like a Kamzat Chumaya, who, like, they liked and they wanted to push hard. But it turned into like this weird sort of moderation, right? Like he had these hard fights like Mads Burnell, and I believe Maquan Amerikani was a weirdly tough fight for him. But it was never the kind of thing where he... You're not going to feel like Arnold Allen's a missed opportunity from here on just because he's had the longest win streak in the history of the... Di or not the history. The longest win streak currently in the division. Um, and he's still like number eight, which is something that's really bizarre. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's mostly just the construction of the division, right? Like, someone like... Um, that's that's just yeah. featherweight, isn't it, yeah, in a nutshell? Like, you can, spend, you can spend your entire career, like, just fighting, like, in co-mains and in the middle of the cards and not progressing past your ranking. Yeah, I remember there was an episode, I think it was after or before Cater vs. Ige that me and Danny did, uh, where we just, we were very angry at the rankings, um, and the problem has pretty much stayed exactly the same. Um... So, you know, you have Volkanovski and Holloway, who are relatively active, and no one else is really going to touch them, which means that the title scene is kind of secure, just because no one else deserves to be there. But underneath that, you have a couple top five guys who just aren't real top five guys. So it basically turns out that the six through eight of the division is a better lower half of the top five than the three through five of the division. So <laughs> you have... Um, Korean Zombie, Zabuz Magomed-Cherepov, and Yair Rodriguez, all of whom have not won a fight slash fought since uh, 2019. And 
KZ is the only one of those three who has fought in this decade, and he lost to Brian Ortega. So he is 0-2 against the current rankings, uh, and both of the guys he beat who got him to this ranking have not fought at featherweight since 2019. Uh, that's Moicano <laughs> and Edgar. So they're, they're relics. They've been grandfathered in. Um, and after that, you have uh, the, the three guys that I mentioned. You have Calvin Cater, Josh Emmett, and now Arnold Allen, who have all made independently solid runs since that. Uh, Cater, of course, lost to Max Holloway, but he probably, like, that's the number one, that's like 1B in the division, so, like, that's tough to blame him for. Um, and Josh Emmett's won three in a row, Arnold Allen's won eight in a row, and those guys are just kind of stuck. Uh, there's, like, a ceiling right bo- below those uh, grandfathered in dudes. So, it's tricky. And Arnold Allen probably isn't getting much further, even if the rankings did allow it, uh, because the guys in front of him are pretty tricky. I could see him causing someone like Cater trouble, uh, just because even if he's not as good, he has some qualities that could annoy someone like Calvin Cater. You know, uh, competitiveness off the hand fight, uh, the open stance, which could take away the jab, uh, very kicky on the legs, um, solid footwork on the outside, and not too keen to be in exchanges. Uh, I can see all that annoying Calvin Cater, but beyond that, it's kind of tricky to see him outright winning a fight like that. You know, someone with a lot more firepower. Uh, Josh Emmett's winnable, but again, it's a, it's a tricky fight for him. Uh, so on to the actual fight between Arlen Allen and Josh, <laughs> or, or Sadiq Yusuf, rather. We spent all this time contextualizing the division, uh, which is something that we do online all the time just because it's such an annoying division to talk about for being so good. Um, it was a fun fight. So we saw Sadiq Yusuf being the pressure, which we expected. Uh, Yusuf is a pretty solid counterpuncher who can jab into range. Um, he's a good pressure fighter with a solid kicking game. Uh, but here... I think a lot of what sunk him was his durability and Arnold Allen's craft and fighting off the hand fight. So we did see him um, uh, get uh, behind his shoulder as Sadiq Yusuf approached. He did a nice job uh, counterpunching. And really a lot of it was just Sadiq Yusuf not really being super smart deep into the fight. Where yeah, we basically. Saw, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, with, uh, with Allen tying up his hands... Uh, Allen was basically opening himself up for the kicks, and yet Yusuf didn't really go for them like all that much. Yeah. So basically, he just let uh, Allen tie up his hands and then do his uh, uh, like just tee off on him for certain periods of, of the fight. Like he, he's done good work at, uh, in some moments, and then just basically stopped doing it for some reason. Yeah, both guys had fairly clever looks. So we did see Yusuf. Um cutting off Allen's uh, exit with the kicks at one point in the fight. I think it was in round two, uh, where he was able to like cut him off with the kicks and throw the punches. Allen's still very uncomfortable defensively in exchanges. He has like some decent... Uh, one thing that he does that's like reasonably distinctive among TriStar fighters is that like little high elbow as he circles off. Uh, so it keeps guys from just like left-hooking him on the way out. But it's not a deep defensive toolbox, and Sadiq Yusuf seemed to be poised to take advantage of that if he could solve the ring craft, which he kind of couldn't. Uh, because he wasn't as keen to kick. But Allen had some nice looks. He was countering to the body sometimes. He was punching out the hand fight. Uh, and the round two knockdown came off that southpaw double attack. And we did see uh, Yusuf struggle uh, with against Andre Feely. So, you know, there there were some issues here for both guys, but it was Allen's edge down the stretch that won the fight. Um, as for where he goes from here, yeah, he probably should be fighting up. It's just that the entire division is tied up. Uh, KZ's fighting Dead Ige, which is an interesting fight, but also, like, 
the winner should be fighting someone like Allen, and they'll probably be fighting someone like Holloway. Um, like, uh, the, the thing with uh, the Iggy KZ fight is that KZ shouldn't be ranked, and Iggy probably should, should yeah. be ranked higher. Yeah, he ranked is part higher. of that same like six through eight class i believe is like number nine or ten right now yeah i think yeah i think that's that is the case yeah yeah and uh, then we've had uh middle wedge julian marcus with his versus ml like nah. <laughs> who gives a shit mackenzie turn versus nina nina Nunez. okay that was a good performance we did yeah see... yeah. yeah we saw the former nina answer off now nina nunez uh give tatiana suarez a good amount of trouble um mostly in the wrestling uh, Suarez is like a really athletic but fairly unpolished in terms of connecting or striking to a wrestling uh, fighter. So Mackenzie Dern being able to like fluster Nina on the back foot uh, with those blitzes and eventually get her to the fence. I think it was like she hit a single leg and just crawled all over her. So it was about as impressive as a, of a performance as you get. It was kind of a Maya-type performance from, uh, yeah, you know, just easy sub, so... It's progression. That's about as far as you could say. Uh, women's MMA isn't the deepest place out there, but I don't think anyone really expected Dern to get this far uh, after those first couple performances. The um, Amanda yeah. Rebus loss, that was really uh, ugly plus, for her. Uh, plus her constant... Uh, weight. Yeah, the, the weight issues where he, she was unable to make weight like for, the, for no love, no money. <laughs> And and plus, she I think she um, gave birth at some point, didn't she? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, everyone just assumed that she's going to just kind of. Although to well, be fair, her... I think Nunez also gave birth, so uh, yeah, even Stevens there. True. <laughs> true. Uh, yeah, I don't. Danny oh. Rodriguez. Oh, well to wait. Danny Rodriguez versus Mike Perry. Mike Perry looked like dog shit. Yeah, Mike Perry is not gonna look good at this point in yeah. his career. Um, we saw him struggle with Mickey. Well, I think right before the Mickey Gall fight was the Jeff Neal fight. So Jeff yeah. Neal murdered him. Uh, Southpaw double attack, just easy and stuff. Before Jeff Neal, there was the Vicente Luque fight. Yes, where he gave Luque basically a fight of his life, and then and then suddenly he just fell apart. Yeah. So since Luque, he's pretty much never looked good. That fight like took everything from him. Well, that fight didn't, but you know his coaching and his general brain thinking kind of did. Um, you know, well, we have... Mike Perry himself did, yeah. <laughs> essentially. Like we have seen Mike Perry have some clever moments as a boxer. Um, we saw in the Luque fight, he was doing a nice job working around Luque's guard. Uh, you know, drawing it in and punching around it or punching the body. And he was just absolutely rawhide tough, which he still is. Uh, it's just that that's all he has at this point. Someone like Daniel Rodriguez well, yeah, can Yeah, the, the thing is that he, he's looked, he's at least looked functional. He looked like an MMA fighter, and now he just kind of, he's just a strong guy, I guess. Yeah, I kind of think that he's gone blind. Um, <laughs> like, hear me out. Like, okay, it's not the Jeff Neal fight, but... Mickey Gall was hitting him with straight punches and angling off, and Mickey Gall should not be, like, doing any of that to you. Um, <laughs> I think if your thing is being in the pocket, you should be able to, like, deal with Mickey Gall throwing straights at you. Uh, at this, like, Tim Means and um, Daniel Rodriguez both had a lot of success just throwing straight punches. Didn't really need to set them up much, just hit him in the face over and over and over and over and over. Uh, Perry can't really win exchanges anymore because of that. He's just always reactive I mean, and not reacting well so maybe it's the booze who knows 
<laughs> just. I, mean, I don't think we need just, to like reach for explanations that aren't Mike Perry has just gone off the deep end all by himself. Yeah. And then what was interesting? What was John McDessie? Uh, that was fun. Yeah, McDessie. McDessie had a good performance. Yeah, Defeated Ignacio Bahamondes. Yeah, McDessie was probably the funnest part of the. F uh, well, there was Matthews Gamron, but McDessie was probably the funnest fight of the night. Uh, Ignacio Bahamondes started out. It looked like it'll be a troublesome fight for McDessie, just based on like activity and someone not really giving him uh, really like clean conventional looks. Uh, because we did see in like the, for instance, in the Ross Pearson fight, McDessie was superb. It was probably his best career performance even to this day. Because uh, Pearson is just a really you know classical boxer with his slips and his straight punching. Uh, Bahamondes did like long kicking and noodly punches and switching stances between each shot, and that tends to trouble someone who's way shorter and smaller and works on the counter. But he found a shot. Uh, it was that um, that left hook counter that he lands on pretty much everybody. Uh, McDessie's just brilliant. He's so good. Uh, a lot of his issues are just athleticism. Uh, we saw that in like the Donald Cerrone fight, and even like yeah, mm, even in the Trinaldo fight to an extent. Trinaldo would always be troublesome for him, even at athletic parity, just because he's a really kicky southpaw who knows how to play a southpaw game. Uh, but he's just brilliant. Lots of fun left hook countering, out jabbing a taller guy uh, with just his um, his slips on the inside, which is probably just the best part of his game. Uh, he's got really nice integrated head movement, which he punches out of, which lets him counter simultaneously, which is a skill set that you don't really see that often in MMA. Uh, just consistent slipping off and left hooking guys for extending on their punches. Um, not really much of a pressure fighter in previous fights, but he really bullied Ignacio around the, uh, around the cage here. And Bahamondes, for his part, uh, wasn't really prepared for someone smaller and shorter and weighing less. Like, I think McDessie came in under the limit and Bahamondes came in over the limit. So Yeah, he missed weight by one one and a half pounds, I think. Yeah, so this was, at, it was a featherweight <laughs> beating up a welterweight, <laughs> which yeah. is lots of fun. It was pretty much a Sun Sam Ostadol. Um, but, yeah, really clean performance from McDessie given the circumstances. And uh, I'd like to see him against, you know, more bangering fighters, if that makes sense. Someone like a, a Jeremy Stevens would be fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the, the that's the type of fights you give to like uh, guys who are getting on years a bit. Yeah, and, crystal uh, bets. Yeah, give them fun fights. Just don't use them as a stepping stone, please. <laughs> as yeah. uh, as the UFC usually does. Yeah, I mean, this was the kind of fight where um, Bahamandes came off the Contender Series, so you know that they were trying to give the... Um, yeah, that is exactly what they were trying to do. Yeah, the cool and, old uh, veteran, the noodly Contender Series dude. Yeah, every Contender Series dude is just kind of like very weirdly uncoordinated. It's, it's <laughs> bizarre. And like, first of all, they're usually not very good. And second of all, they always have this, this particular type of a particular body type and style of movement that kind of resembles I don't know <laughs> I guess just kind of I guess it reminds Dana White of John Jones a bit <laughs> I, 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 everyone. yeah I got, I got no other explanation for this phenomenon it's yeah, bizarre I mean, contender series has a couple of fun guys like Alex Perez and Jeff Neal uh, Julio Arce is a fun one but generally mm. it's just picking guys based on how well they finish their regional tier opponent isn't super interesting 
it's it isn't super by. interesting and it, and it isn't very like informative about their yeah, style and what they're going to do. Yeah, and uh, but, but then again, Dana White is uh, kind of uh, he's not a very smart man when <laughs> it comes to deciding these things. He's not a very smart man generally, I would say. But, yeah. Yeah, so that's John McDessie. Um Matthews Gamrot did a nice job against Scott Scott. The gamer. A win for the gamers worldwide, the most oppressed community, <laughs> the most oppressed minority. Did he say the gamer word after the fight? Uh, no, I don't think so. Maybe okay. maybe in Polish. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah, Gamrot <laughs> looked good. Um, his fight before this one was against Goram Kataladze, which was a surprisingly great fight, considering both Yeah, it was an awesome fight. fight. And, and like, uh, I think it caught everyone off guard by how good it was. Yeah, a lot of people expected Gamrot to be good. He was booked against um, Magomed Mustafayev, I believe. Um, yeah. And then Mustafayev fell out, and then it turned into... No, I think it was Moikano Mustafayev. Gamrot <laughs> filled in for Moikano, and Kutataladze filled in for Mustafayev, which is the same way that a fight like Benil Daryush's James Vick came together. <laughs> uh, so those tend to be very random well, and fun. But... Uh, yeah, yeah. G- Gamrot is... Um... He's uh, he, he's a um, very proficient guy, yeah, I, and I like looking back. I think he won that Kutatiladze fight, didn't he? It's, it was just kind of uh, a weird decision. Yeah, I think I gave it to Garam, but it could have been. It really could have gone either way. It was really close. Yeah, pretty uh, much. If Garam didn't get the really knockdown at the beginning of round two, I don't think anyone would give it to him. Yeah. Wow. And uh, he um, he mixed up some like nice low single, some low singles, and then and then banged Scott Holtzman out. Yeah, one weird Super thing about Scott Holtzman is that a lot of his game is built on fighting in the open stance, which works a lot worse if you're the orthodox because you're not going to face as many southpaws as there are southpaws who are going to fight orthodox fighters. Um, yeah, that, that's, 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 uh, that's kind of a strange decision. Yeah, it's Tyron Woodley's <laughs> Holtzman. It's... Uh, <laughs> A lot of, like we saw in the fights against uh, Alan Patrick and Jim Miller, both of whom were southpaws, uh, that a lot of Holtzman's counterpunching was he pressure them to the fence, uh, draw out rushes, angle out to the open side, and crack them with the right hand, which is a clever way to fight, but it's also a lot trickier against orthodoxes. Benil Daryush figured that out as a southpaw, um, just, you know, lots of proactive defense, drawing it out. And here, Matthias Gamrot was able to cover his rushes with feints, uh, and when he did commit to something and saw um, Holtzman angle off, he just get behind his shoulder, which is the thing that has troubled Tyron Woodley for his entire career. Um, <laughs> lots of fun looks in the wrestling from Mateusz Gamrat. Low singles, uh, got on the ankle and managed to pull off a nice transition to the back at least once. And just moving around the lateral movement gave Holtzman a lot of trouble. Eventually, he was able to just find the right hand and put him on the floor. So... Holtzman is old and not super interesting to start with. Uh, lots of people would consider him wasted potential. He's fine, a decent test for prospects, but you know I'm not sure he ever had a ton in him to go much further than that. Uh, Gamrot's interesting. I think he could be top 15-ish. Yeah, he could basically like earn like earn a decent spot in the division and then just kind of stay there for yeah, a while. Yeah, I think he's elite, but he's going to have some fun fights. Yeah, and that's uh that's basically it for yeah, this card. I mean That's just it was a long ass card, but there was nothing really only like three or four fights like stand out in yeah. any way. 
McDessie and Arnold Allen were probably the the standouts. McDessie, Gamrot, and Arnold Allen. Um, yeah. This next card on the bright side has even less. So we have Robert Whitaker oh, versus Kelvin Gastelum, and I think the tradition with that fight is to make the undercard as bad as possible, uh, because the last time it was booked was UFC two thirty four, I believe. Um, it was one of those Australia cards where they put nothing but Australian regional talent on the undercard. Uh, this uh, time, it at least had Israel Adesanya versus Anderson Silva, but that eventually turned into the main event, and it forced us all to look in the eye how uninteresting that fight really was on paper. Um, but this time, the co-main event to Robert Whitaker versus Kelvin Gastelum is Jeremy Stevens, winless in his last five, versus Tricar Close, who is a lightweight, and I can't really describe him as much more. Uh, MMA lab person, does a lot of calf kicks, got his ass kicked by Benil Daryush. So that's the co-main event. Not super interesting, and I don't think we'll go into this card that much. And, but and then we the got Andrei Arlovsky versus Chase Sherman at heavyweight. <laughs> <laughs> the legend, Andrei Arlovsky, the legend, both facing guy, a young up and cover. You know, the real person we should talk about in this situation is Shamil Abdurahimov, because he beat them both up really badly. Now, actually, the Arlovsky fight sucked, but he did kill Chase Sherman in, like, 40 and, seconds. And then we got Abdul Razak Al-Hassan versus a uh, uh, guy with no Wikipedia page. Luis Peña versus guy with no Wikipedia page. Ricardo Hamush versus uh, Bill Algio, also no Wikipedia I think that page. Fight, that fight fell through. Ricardo Ramos is out, but Bill Algio is oh, pretty yeah. decent. Uh, yeah. Ricardo Lamas a decent fight in his final fight. I don't know if that fight's still on. And then, then, then the prelims are just kind of... Uh, I'm not good, I don't even want to read them. It yeah, has, I think we'll just talk about the it, main event for this one. Yeah, uh, yeah, also, incidentally, speaking about bad cards, uh, currently there's uh, one championship uh, <laughs> card going on. <laughs> one on TNT2. I, I mean, I don't know how they resisted the urge to name it after a Bruce Lee movie, but I guess... <laughs> Gotta give him credit for that. It's one called One on Dragon. TNT too. Yeah, the synops- they they've got a synopsis for this card. It's really fun. like it's great. It's like that's one championships, one championships biggest month in history continues on April 14 on One on TNT two. <laughs> Headlining the stacked card is a massive battle for one lightweight world title as reigning kingpin Christian yeah. Lee. <laughs> <laughs> Defense is built against the man who knocked out Eddie Alvarez, number three ranked contender, Timofey Nystuykin. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a fun uh, fight, I think. I haven't seen much yeah. of Christian Lee, but uh, Nystuykin is like a, a decent boxer. Um, I don't really have a ton to say. Uh, Bellator, what? now that we're on off the uh, other fight, has Matt Burnell. And they've happily put him as the first fight on the card, so you don't have to watch the rest to get to Mads Burnell. So I mean, it, it's uh, it's kind of them to do that. Uh, yeah. At least I, yeah, just hop in, watch the first fight, and then don't bother with anything else. Yeah, it's like that fight where Feely Jordan was, uh, that card where Feely Jordan was on the prelims because the main event was Jessica I. So you're just like, okay, <laughs> I don't have to stay up late to watch the cool guys. But... Um, Anything else? Uh, I don't really oh, know. Uh, but yeah, one, the UFC card. One, also, one has uh, the all, this card actually has a Mongolian guy on it, oh, nice. and uh, he he he's got a very fun name. Like uh, it's a it's a very fun name to try and pronounce. It, 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 uh, his name is Shnetz. Wait, 
<coughs> let me let me move into my Mongolian brain mode. She ne chakka zaltsak. I cannot try that. I know um <laughs> Dovlishan Yakshimurdov's fighting, who he isn't fun but he's reasonably interesting. Um yeah, I can't really think of uh say that again, I wanna try that. Okay, I don't know where to start. <laughs> it has no it has no vowels. <laughs> really? What are the vowels? How are you supposed to do that? But, uh, yeah, that's the end of Bellator and one. Um, and one. Yeah, we just have Robert Whitaker and Kelvin Gastelum. So, middleweight fight. Kelvin Gastelum doesn't necessarily deserve the opportunity. Uh, has just won his first fight since 2019. Um, against Ian Heinish, who our friend Danny Martin consistently calls Strong Bellwas, and I don't <coughs> know why, but nah. it's a fun comparison. Uh, Gastelum, he, 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 off that fight, oh, go ahead. It's a, it's a comparison Danny understands, and that's enough, I guess. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> uh, what's life without metaphors that are stretched to breaking point? But that's uh, Kelvin Gastelum, Robert Whitaker, off two solid wins um, with... Darren Till and Jared Cannonier. So Gastelum a pretty big step back in that respect. Gastelum um, losing what's, pretty uh, much every fight in the last couple of years. Yeah, he got uh, shit stomped by Adesanya, then uh, yeah. dropped the decision to Darren Till, and then Sub got submitted Hermanson. with a heel hook by Jack Hermanson, who hates southpaws. Like institutionally, he's unable <laughs> to fight with against southpaws, and yet. Gastelum still managed to lose a lose to a Manson and by submission to boot by a heel hook. Shocking, but yeah, I mean I don't think the Hermanson fight is necessarily the one to look at here. But another, a be, the better fights would probably be uh, Adesanya and Till, just because Gastelum is pretty rote, not the best guy to look at in terms of. Well, okay, let's yeah. start with this. There are really minimalist fighters who are very, very successful and very, very good at fighting. Uh, I would not consider Kelvin Gastelum to be one of them. Yeah, because they are minimalist, and yet uh, they've got lots of auxiliary auxiliary tools that are built around enabling them, uh, enabling the their primary tool. Yes. And Gastelum just kind of throws one twos. He just spams them. And uh, this thing that where people say that he's got like really great head movement, he, no. he just he just bobs his head from side to side. That's it. That's that's the extent of his head movement. <laughs> yeah, like we saw, like pretty much the entire Kelvin Gastelum's a great defensive boxer thing came from the Weidman fight, which is funny because Weidman actually outboxed him for like most of that fight. <laughs> um, he had the knockdown and he had that one little stretch with like moving his head. But past that, like, even that little stretch was preceded by Weidman hitting him clean with an uppercut. So you can't really say a ton about it. But, yeah, Gastelum is, I think the way to put it is that he's kind of like a Cody Garbrandt, where he's all offense or all defense at any given moment. So we saw in the Weidman fight where he got hit hard and he needed to go on the defensive. He can, like, move his head mechanically, like, decently, I guess. But when he's hitting, he doesn't really have that. Uh, that's the example for that is the Jacare fight where he put a premium on putting a pace on Jacare, uh, and as a result ran into Jacare's sole counterpunch over and over and over and over and over and over and over. <laughs> Probably lost that fight. Uh, it, I think I had a 29-27 Sosa just because first round was a clear Sosa round and probably a 10-8 and third round. Uh, was probably a Sosa round, honestly, which is pretty shocking when, you know, Sosa's super old and you put a pace on him and you're still losing that round. So, 
That's Kelvin Gastelum. Uh, like, you could really, like, someone like Max Holloway built his game around, like, a jab and a two. Uh, at least early in his career, that was, like, a lot of what he did. And he made that work against Jose Aldo. But the difference is that he has a lot of nuance to his game. He can play with the jab. He can play with rhythm. Uh, and he has really great offensive footwork. Where someone like Kelvin Gastelum just doesn't have those things. He has a decent amount of speed, uh, closing distance, or at least he did at one point. Um, but just one twos and three twos on similar rhythms over and over. So uh, he's facing someone who's maybe a little bit less pleasing to the classicist, but definitely a lot better at doing the things that he does safely and effectively in Robert Whitaker. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just uh, not to bit around the bush. I think this is pretty much a layup for Whitaker. I, I think he just, I think he just kicks his head off. Like, <clears throat> I mean, uh, I guess the only things I can see giving Whitaker some pause is that Gastelum is kind of, uh, he's kind of like that um, wound up toy, wind up <laughs> toy that kind of just just kind of like has this psycho energy that he just moves forward at all times and uh he's kind of uh he's kind of too dumb to understand when he's getting uh <laughs> getting <laughs> his shit pushed in this is what happened uh against adesanya people always point to that adesanya fight oh gave adesanya his toughest fight like uh no uh i mean he marked up adesanya a bunch but uh essentially adesanya just basically kicked his ass for for the for the whole five rounds and then finished him three times in a row in the fifth <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think the thing with the Adesanya fight is A, it was genuinely Castellum's best career performance, and B, yeah. at least two other people have given Adesanya a tougher fight, and Yo Romero and, of course, Jan Blachowicz now. So, it uh, was I mean, a courageous performance uh, from Keldon, for sure. Yeah. It wasn't the fight that people thought it was. Yeah. Because if you look at it, uh, it's more about it as, um in retrospect, it's a fight that uh, revealed Adesanya's flaws, if anything. Yeah. Like, uh, vulnerability. Like, he's vulnerable if you don't... If you just ignore his feints and just kind of blast him. He, he also hated the fact that uh, Gastelum is so short. <laughs> he also hated that Gastelum is so... F he, and Gastelum kind of surprised him with his uh, quickness. Yeah. So I guess those were the only things that... Um, Basically, the only things that allowed Gaston have to have the fight he managed to give uh, Adesanya. I mean, that's and the thing with Kelvin is that pretty much his entire game, uh, without like really clever change-ups or like rhythm switches or anything, a lot of his game has come down to just surprising people with being really quick uh, and having a decent punch, which isn't super sustainable at a division that isn't middleweight. Um, the reason that it was sustainable at middleweight is that pretty much every contender is old and or broken. So we saw him <laughs> beat, what, Tim Kennedy Michael, in his final Michael fight. Michael Bisping. Michael Bisping in A, his final fight, and B, uh, he was half blind, he was C, two no weeks off the GSP loss. Yeah, the GSP basically knocked him out and then uh, choked him out to boot. Choked him unconscious yeah. after knocking him down. And then, then just less than a month later, he was thrown to Kevin Gastelum. So... That's something. Uh, Jacare, who probably beat him, but also old, so even Gaston <laughs> getting the official decision is something. Uh, Heinish, who was never really a thing, uh, just, you know, a really janky counter wrestling type, but not the best guy out there. Not, like, basically every contender that Kelvin Gaston's beaten 
anyone who can really be pretended to be a contender, um, has been old, very old, uh, too old to really be relevant and or themselves. So when your game is shocking people with speed of hand and foot and decent power, that's generally how it's going to go, where you have good matchups who are old and bad matchups who can deal with that and push you into deeper exchanges. Cody Garbrandt's another example. Like we've, That's a parallel that's like weirdly accurate, that they've had like a <laughs> single good career performance, can't beat anyone who isn't old, and have a ton of cred for being great boxers, even though they're like super and, limited uh, in several ways. But, yeah, and uh, both those performances are kind of really misunderstood by many people. Like... The Garbrandt uh, Cruise fight is uh, often considered uh, like a, a master class. And then when, in fact, uh, Garbrandt was starting to get figured uh, get figured out by Cruise by the end of it, and it was just basically kind of uh, Gar- Garbrandt exploiting Cruise's technical deficiencies more than uh, any sort of like, like extremely smart strategy or whatever. Yeah, I mean, we'll get to talking about Garbrandt soonish because he's fighting Rob Font, who's one of my <laughs> favorite bantamweights on the roster. Um, but yeah, it's just it's a similar thing, right? That when your game is being super athletic, uh, and well, Garbrandt's a superb puncher for the weight class. Gastelum, I'm slightly less sure about after his recent run. But when so much of your game is just being really quick and being able to win exchanges on even ground via quickness, you're not generally going to do well when guys are as quick as you. And Gastelum uh, has struggled with that. Yeah, first of all, as quick as you, and second of all, also actually have tools that uh, enable them to use that uh, milk milk that a speed advantage uh, to to a more effective extent than uh, than Gastelum's just spamming one twos. <laughs> yeah, the, the bad news here for Kelvin Gastelum is that Robert Whitaker is also very very quick. Um, yeah. If anything, I might say he's quicker in an objective sense than someone like Calvin Gastelum. Uh, lots of quick bursts in and out. Uh, I think Whitaker is also one of the more misunderstood fighters on the roster, just on in the opposite direction, where Calvin Gastelum yeah. is like really sort of conventional form and his commitment to like punching really simply makes people think he's better than he looks. Where Whitaker has. Some flair to uh, some flair to his game that makes people underrate him a lot. Uh, there's the bursting forward and leaving stance sometimes. It's not necessarily good, but he's pretty much always covered while he's doing it. Um, so and yeah, Robert would. Uh, he's just basically built uh, his style around uh, that burst, and uh, naturally he has lots of tools to kind of cover up for the most glaring weaknesses of that style. Yeah, that's the thing. Like Someone like Kellen Gastelum gets a lot of defensive credit for moving his head very obviously in a lot of, um, in, well, in some instances, uh, where Robert Whitaker is a much more subtle defensive operator and one of the more effective defensive operators in the sport where you can see him he has building... An actual, he has an actual defensive system. He has yeah. some preemptive defensive looks built in along with his offense. Yeah, that's incredibly rare in MMA. Like... Yeah, it bears mentioning someone like uh, Whitaker, Jose Aldo. Uh, who else has a good defensive system? I mean, we've mentioned John uh, McDessie. Uh, well, Dustin Poirier has that weird guard, but he doesn't use it really as a system. Yeah, I mean, Poirier has the platform. Poirier has the shell, but he's also yeah. a little bit too irresponsible with his feet to 
consider him a strong defensive fighter necessarily. But that's the uh, point, right? Like, systems in yeah. general, offensive or defensive, are very rare in the sport. And Robert Whitaker, he's built some level of defense into basically everything he's done. Um, lots of dipping jabs and dipping into his left hook, um, getting behind his shoulders off his shots, uh, framing to keep guys from closing distance after his bursts. Uh, the push kick, which is, it functions as both an offensive and a defensive tool, which is something that we saw in the Yoel Romero first fight, where Romero couldn't really close distance with the front kick in his, uh, in his gut over and over. And that's particularly relevant to this fight, in my opinion, because that's the last really short southpaw that we've seen Whitaker face. So the front kick is going to be there uh, through the rear side. Um, yeah, about that. Have... Uh... Do we have any similar matchups to Kelvin Gaston, at least in terms of attributes? I when mean, when was the last time when Whitaker actually fought like a short guy, a really short guy? Uh, was that was that ever a thing? Well, I think it might have just been Yo Romero. Um, but then Romero isn't really like uh, like built the same way Gaston is. Very true. <laughs> very true. <laughs> Romero's a, a huge middleweight, and Kelvin Gaston's. Uh, Biggest enemy, uh, according to a lot of people, has just been not bothering to make welterweight. I don't think he'd be a better welterweight than he's a middleweight. If anything, I think he'd be worse relative nah, to the field. Nah. But I mean, his defense, his uh, wrestling uh, credential—he has some wrestling credentials, but uh, his uh, wrestling game is mostly built around being like kind of uh, just kind funky. of rolling around. Yeah, he has a lot of decent counter wrestling tools, but not really much fundamental takedown defense. Uh, which yeah. we saw in the Weidman fight as well, where like when Weidman was deep in on his hips, Gaslam wouldn't really try to do anything. Um, I think wrestling might be an interesting tool for Whitaker here as well, just because we've seen in both the Cannoneer and the Till fights uh, that he has been willing to take a shot here and there. Against Till, it was mostly a transitional tool, uh, where he'd shoot the single, uh, let Till peel him off his legs and crack him on the way out. Against Gaslam, who doesn't really have the big the way Till does or the strong the way Cannoneer does, uh, Whitaker might be able to just ride out some time on top, which would be the funniest way for this to go. Um, <laughs> I wonder if uh, Rob will like mix in some uh, upper body, upper body takedowns, because uh, uh, first of all, Rob has a tendency of bursting in and just kind of crashing with guys. Second of all, Gaston also has a tendency of crashing with guys because he always very square and uh, kind of uh, well with the spammy spammy one too. So I think that. May kind of lend itself naturally to some exchanges in uh, in the clinch. Yeah, you know one uh, interesting thing is we did see against Cannoneer, Whitaker actually hit that uh, that little fader, where he throw the straight and weave underneath into the body lock. Uh, he got yeah. a takedown off that, and Cannoneer was up right away. But it was an interesting little look, and we can see that uh, Whitaker's putting some thought into setting takedowns up to an extent. Um, one cool thing was it was actually off like that little shortened straight where he like square shoulders first. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah throw the straight uh, where he could like play it off the jab so interesting stuff I think there's a lot of stuff that Whitaker can do here uh, as you mentioned Kelvin being really squared up pretty much all the time I'll uh, leave him a mark for the kicking game because Whitaker has been a pretty committed linear kicker um, through his late middleweight career I don't know if he really did it before Romero won but since then he's been you know chopping away at legs a lot um, another interesting thing is that Whitaker has shown some appreciation for um just kicking the arms, which is how he broke Cannonier's <laughs> arms, where he just yeah. like, kind of spammed the head kick through the first couple rounds, uh, wait for the other guy to block it badly and just damage their arms that way. So an open stance matchup is interesting for that. I don't know. There's just way too many spots here for me to really give Kelvin much of a shot. Do you agree? 
yeah, I think like just basically Whitaker is just kind of better everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> this this is uh this is just that's just how it is. It feels like a trap matchup with how easy it seems. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's it's it, it's kind of it kind of makes me uneasy almost like the yeah way that's it, the thing it's like every bit of success Kelvin Gastelum has is success he shouldn't be having essentially <laughs> I mean even the even the head kick thing like uh, just purely because Kelvin is so short and I don't think Whitaker has fought anyone that short before like what if he just kind of starts spamming head kicks and just uh, and it slips off. And it misses consistently because uh, <laughs> because Robert aims too high or something something equally something dumb like that and it kind of gives gives Gastelum an area of success. It would be so dumb. <laughs> you know, one interesting thing compared to the first fight, uh, well, not the first fight, the first booking uh, was that you know back when Calvin Gastelum was supposed to be this really um, durable, pressury, punchy type, uh, was against yeah. Ian Heinish a lot of his efforts were wrestling and that's like the dumbest way to try to beat Robert Whittaker uh, he's, <laughs> he's a really really diligent grip fighter on the fence he's got tremendous balance tremendous hips uh, it's pretty much impossible to wrestle him as close to impossible as it is to wrestle any middleweight and pretty much anyone in the sport so that's a bad idea and it kind of takes away the meme outcome chances that Kelvin Gastelum has the issue yeah. of course is that even when he's trying to strike um, someone like Darren Till was able to outfight him really comfortably uh, just by being like baby's first Leon Edwards. Uh, <laughs> basic outside footwork, being long, clinching Till, as he walks in. So. Yeah, Till really hadn't done anything like uh, outstanding in that fight. He just kind of skipped around, uh, threatened the occasional counter. Yeah. And and uh, Gastelum was kind of just, uh, just didn't bother tr trying to do anything else except to uh, load after him yeah like a gastelum could cover distance the way that he did against adesanya is like a, a slightly more interesting matchup but even there like you could see adesanya is a little bit more uncomfortable in the pocket defensively than someone like whitaker uh he stands taller he's a lot more prone to backing straight out of exchanges um he's not as keen to enter exchanges where he doesn't have the positional advantage uh, which is one way that adesanya beat whitaker was that whitaker was very confident in his ability to win exchanges on anyone's terms or, uh, yeah, and he also got kind them. of, yeah. he kind of got anxious uh, by, like, uh, w whenever he didn't land uh, his first strike, his second strike, and then he just kind of got way into it. Just, I need to land this one. I need to land this one. Let me have this one. <laughs> and then <laughs> just he got countered this, uh, uh, this way, which is, uh, I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> if we were to examine Robert Whitaker's flaws, I think the first one would probably be kicking defense. He hasn't loved being kicked throughout his entire career. Um, Jared Cannonier had some success, but Whitaker worked it out. Uh, Darren Till didn't really do much, but when he did kick, it wasn't dealt with tremendously. Uh, he actually did a better job dealing with Adesanya's kicks than I thought, but also Adesanya hadn't really started developing it. Um, the Natal fight is probably the worst one for that, but it's also early career. It's just something that we haven't seen him deal with super well. Yeah, and uh, everyone also points that uh, his blitzes are counterable, but they are very tricky to time. But yeah. uh, I mean, it's it's an opening, but it's a not a very large one, I think. 
Yeah, I think that's one thing, is that Whitaker's blitzes when he gets the opportunity to set them up. Uh, that's the thing about Whitaker, is he likes his ins and outs to be really snappy. And when they are, he's pretty much impossible. I wouldn't say impossible. He's really, really difficult to beat. Uh, because he faints on the outside, he sets it up with the jab really well. Uh, he plays his attacks off each other. And the blitzes, they're pretty much never when you expect them to be. The issue is when he has to cover more distance than he wants to, when the in's less snappy than he wants, and because the in is less efficient than he wants it to be, he's less he's more reluctant to go out as quickly as he usually does. So that's what happened with Adesanya. Adesanya made getting in on himself really, really tough with the way that he'd angle off and back up and be really long. And with that, Whitaker was just extending the exchanges really long, longer than he should have, and lost at a positional disadvantage. So... That's kind of the issue with Robert Whitaker in some of these fights, and even that's been tough to exploit. Like someone like Darren Till uh, didn't have the craft of someone like Adesanya in setting those exchanges up. So when he just backed straight up while being big, instead of just lunging in, Whitaker just conceded a slow fight where he kicked the leg a lot. So Whitaker can work through tough matchups um, that try to exploit his skill or try to exploit his weaknesses rather in a less nuanced way. And I don't think Kelvin Gastelum's in much of a position to exploit his weaknesses at all much less in a particularly nuanced way. So yeah. a short guy who's going to walk towards him, um, a southpaw is going to give him the straight head kick changeup, uh, someone who's very open to the body, someone who's very takedownable if he needs a break. It's just, it's a very forgiving matchup for Whitaker that he shouldn't be struggling in. Yeah, hypothetically, if Kelvin Gastelum wasn't, you know, Kelvin Gastelum bad. was kind of, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't bad, like, uh, there are two ways a short guy can draw out, a, can exploit a game of someone who, like Whitaker who likes in and, like bursting in and out movement. Like, you can... Obviously, you can pressure them and yes. uh, just kind of get inside the range. And you can, like you've pointed out with uh, the uh, the Sonya and uh, Darren Till examples, like, uh, you can stay way on the outside and draw out the uh, this... Uh, in and out burst. This uh, you can draw out the blitz, and yeah. make uh, Whitaker cover more distance than he would like to. But I don't think Kelvin will do that. I don't have. I don't have. He has. I don't think he has the facilities for that big man. <laughs> Good one. But yeah, I mean, we have seen. It's not that a short guy can't be a long guy necessarily. It's just that. Gastelum isn't the kind Gastelum, of like. Gastelum is the type of short guy to be to to, to fight the dumb fight. Yeah, <laughs> it's like short guys lose. Yeah, we've seen fights like Rafael Sansa versus Rob Font, where the long guy trying to cover distance is going badly for them. But then it takes the short guy having like really strong ring craft and like specific traps in mind. Otherwise, it can just be pressure. Like McDessie versus Bahamandas was an interesting one, where Bahamand uh, where Bahamandas just had his room taken away completely and just got counterpunched every time he moved. The issue is that Gaslam doesn't have the ring craft and Whitaker definitely does have the ring craft. So it's a just it's a nightmarish fight for Calvin Gaslam in my opinion. I think most of the people giving Gaslam a good shot going off the Whitaker is hittable thing. It's just that misunderstanding with Robert Whitaker that the aggression with which he fights is defensive irresponsibility when Gaslam is a lot less responsible defensively. <laughs> Well, uh, Whitaker is hittable, be seems hittable because he's always, like, I, I don't think he's fought a an easy fight, like, uh, since uh, since he's ever entered middleweight. Yeah, like, like 
Since before Brunson, at least. Yeah. Like, every fight... Uh, in every fight, everyone tried to take his head off. And, uh, you know, and everyone was kind of huge and athletic and powerful. And tried to kind of steamroll him. And so, naturally, he had to fight very aggressively to get... Uh, to get his opponents off him, and so he got into very hairy exchanges. So naturally, he was going to get hit in those. Everyone would get hit in those exchanges. Yeah, everyone in MMA is hittable to some extent. It's just you know, it's a meaningless descriptor, is what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm gonna go with Robert Whitaker wins via knockout later in the fight. I think he kicks his body up and eventually finds the kill shot. So uh, Whitaker head kick round four. <laughs> yes. I, I guess same, yeah. Yeah. Whitaker kicks his head off. Yep, you led with that, so let's go with it. Um, yeah. Now we have the Patreon uh, request. I think that's all the fights that we have to talk about. So. Well, we also have Ben Askren versus Jake Paul. Oh. Okay. <laughs> That'll work. Uh, I got nothing. I got nothing to say about this fight except yeah. the fact that it was really funny. How the PR team tried to like tried their damnedest to make Ben Askren look like a professional fighter. <laughs> <laughs> took like, took the retired. world's premier experts in photography to give the best lighting that uh, can make Ben Askren look kind of halfway athletic. Like there was a very um, funny comment I saw on the in uh, in uh, I got a very funny comment that said that uh, it looks like. The, Ben Askren, Ben Askren's love handles look like uh, make him look like he, his torso has cheeks full of food, like some kind of fleshy melting squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, anyone who followed what we as a site said about Ben Askren during his pro career would probably know that we're not really sad to see him get beat up here. It's just not something that should be happening. Yeah, and I saw some people go like, oh, I'm rooting for Ben Askren because I'm rooting for a real fighter to beat up a YouTuber. He's retired uh, and old. He's not... He, why? Uh, and he isn't really an MMA fighter, really. Like, his whole shtick in MMA was... is Yeah, the, his whole run in MMA was, I'm going to college wrestle everyone and yeah. I'm not going to learn anything else. It's just there's a universe where Ben Askren just, like, clinches Jake Paul a lot, tires him out and wins with the ugly... Uh, ugly stuff he did to Damian Maya, but <laughs> I just don't really care to see it, and it's not really a fight that interests me unless Jake Paul turns out to like actually be decent at boxing, which I have no reason to believe because uh, he's outboxed other YouTubers. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, let's end it there. We have a Patreon request that I think is actually pretty interesting, both in terms of uh, examples and discussing what the question itself actually means. So Iggy, take it away. Uh. Uh, right, our uh, question is uh, thus. What are, in your opinion, uh, can be considered... Uh, what, in your opinion, can be considered an example of a genuine fluke in MMA, like a, like a freak accident in MMA? What fights can be served as an example of that? And I guess we, can, we should uh, get into... We should uh, discuss what, uh, what uh, do we usually mean by a fluke, a fluke outcome in the yeah. first place let's like, start with this mean? that question was from dan demarco thank you for asking dan uh, yeah like, uh, uh, what can even be considered a fluke anyway i mean the way that fluke is colloquially used i don't think really applies to mma or like you know yeah. lightning strikes in the middle well okay i'll put it this way uh stuff like megan anderson versus katzen Kano 
or Jorge Masvidal versus Jake Ellenberger, I think it was, where like his foot got stuck in the cage, uh, or the toe poke, or I don't know, um, random referee errors like Drew Dober versus Leandro Silva. <coughs> those are flukes. But also, I don't think those are fights that fulfill uh, Dan's second criteria, which was yeah. why the other person would have won. Otherwise, I don't think Ellenberger ever really beats Jorge Masvidal. <laughs> so there's that. Neither do I think that uh, Ben Askren beats Masvidal. Yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, people would call that a, fluke, but a yeah. fluke. Yeah. It's just, I don't think, like, the conventional definition of a fluke is something that happens that's, like, low percentage and no one is really trying to make it happen. That's not going to yeah. happen in MMA. It's much yeah, more and like, usually people usually people describe like uh, talk about quick knockouts as a fluke, and that's that's not really it. Like the knockout, I mean the knockouts happen because people put themselves in positions where they can get knocked out. Yeah, I think in terms of MMA, it's a lot more useful to talk about flukes in terms of low percentage outcomes, and I think that's what Dan meant. Uh, because you yeah. know why you think there are flukes or freak accidents, freak accidents that is like they're not synonymous, and why they're sure the other person would have won otherwise. So it's something where like the worst fighter won in a way that they wouldn't win again. Is I think the definition that we should probably work with here. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And uh, so, um, so we'll start with you for the examples. Uh, I don't know. Ed, Ed suggested we examine the Korean zombie versus Yair fight. Versus Yair Rodriguez. Yeah, that's a good which one. Is, yeah. I mean, technically it's Yair duping Korean zombie into walking onto a shot. But, like, the shot he caught him with was... Uh, stupid. Was stupid. It was, <laughs> it was dumb. It, 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 it was a meme strike, really. Yeah, that's the thing. You could say, like, conceptually, something like Korean zombie walks onto everything I throw, maybe I should throw a counter, is, like, a process that an actual fighter would have. It's just that Yair Rodriguez had pretty much no success on the counter the entire fight, and the one time he had success on the counter was by being uh, him to, in the he, worst he was way. He just kind of went, come at, me, come at me, bro, and Korean zombie was like, oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hang on, here you go. Yeah, I think I'm that's now. like exactly the kind of thing you were talking about, right? Like when someone gets knocked out in a weird way, it was Korean Zombie putting himself in a position to get knocked out in a weird way with like his really dumb, awful blitzes. Those were not Whitaker blitzes. Those were like parody of Joseph Benavidez blitzes, um, and that's what got him knocked out on the counter. Where it becomes a fluke, quotes. I'm, I'm like actually making air quotes as if you can see me. Where it becomes a fluke is whether you'd think that Yair Rodriguez would do that again. And I think most people would agree that no, he would not. Because for the vast majority of the fight, Casey was doing exactly the same thing, and he was winning the fight, even though he looked ugly and gross. So, yeah, I think that's the best one, um, just because of the, the nature of the shot. Uh, my example is, I mean, my examples tend to be like really early stuff, and I'm not just going to make this into an Aldo McGregor salt fest, but <laughs> I'm going to do something similar with my first pick, which was incredibly obscure, uh, Lando Venata versus John McDessie. So I guess Ooh. this has been a John McDessie love fest this entire episode. Uh, we already know what makes John McDessie so cool. Uh, he's a really sharp defensive fighter. Uh, he's a, a tremendous boxer. Um, lots of fun counters off his lead hand, good combination punching, strong positioning, uh, lots of like TKD-inspired stuff where he goes in and out. And against Lando Venata 
there were like a couple exchanges, which I believe McDessie won. And then Venata did his thing, which was a spinning kick that landed and killed McDessie dead. That's <laughs> the kind of thing where if you, I think that was like Venata's one of two decisive wins that he's had in the UFC. Uh, he tapped out that Marcos Mariano guy who was just awful. And um, the McDessie win. So, Venata, who has pretty much zero process whatsoever, uh, he's just, you know, lots of weird head movement and kicks and the, um, the boxing that troubled Tony Ferguson for a little bit. Um, that's pretty much Lando's entire thing. He's just weird. And that got a much sounder fighter who was probably a lot better at uh, winning fights. So that, that'd probably be my example of, like, a fluke in an MMA context where McDessie probably wins the fight over the distance, and it's really unfortunate that the fight went that way. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, and uh, right before recording the podcast, uh, sitting down and starting to record this, I've rewatched Edgar versus Mendes. Like uh, some of the guys in the chat were saying that Edgar yeah. versus Mendes is weird. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of weird in that uh, Mendes just kind of died. But it was still kind of a pretty good shot at the setup there. It was actually a setup, I think. Yeah, not I mean, really... I think that's kind of the way that, like, in MMA, you're not generally going to get, like, guy walks forward and, like, accidentally knocks a dude out with a shoulder. That's just yeah. not the way things happen. Like, strikes are going to be thrown. It's just more how often would that lead to a finish for the better fighter, or for the worst fighter, rather. Um so, like, for instance, right? Yeah. We saw with Whitaker Jackaray. Jackaray landed, like, a shot on the break early in the fight. If that had knocked Whitaker out, we'd know, with the benefit of being in an alternate universe where that didn't happen, that Robert Whitaker was the better fighter. And that would be an example of a fluke. But it didn't happen. Yeah. And, uh... Well, uh, I thought maybe about um, bringing up uh, Stipe Miocic versus, uh, versus Stefan Struve, but then again, that's heavyweight. <laughs> It's yeah. always random. That's also an example of like Stipe being caught significantly pre-prime. So that might happen again if you put that same Stipe and that same Struve in the cage. Uh, it's just any subsequent version of Stipe trashes Struve <laughs> completely. Um, yeah. But, you know, I mean, I think another example that's like kind of similar to what we talked about with Edgar Mendez is uh, Hanato Moikano versus the Korean Zombie. So Zombie's been on both sides of these, in my opinion. Uh, where Zombie landed, yes, a really good cross-counter. He actually set it up where he'd, like, fold over his lead hip, uh, draw the jab out, and uh, crack. And tricked everyone into believing that the Korean Zombie is some kind of good, aggressive counterpuncher or something. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, one, that fight didn't actually make any sense because Zombie had just lost to Yair, and he faced um, Moikano, who was off the Aldo loss, so that was stupid. But even with that outcome, right, like, you can see it, there's a really, a very real threat there from Casey that he's a big puncher who can fight on the counter with jabs and he did a crafty setup with the folding over his lead hip drawing the jab out and cross countering but we also saw in the fights before and after that zombie can't pressure really uh, he chases after fighters he's awful at dealing with kicks and the Ortega fight especially showed that um, he's not really good at facing guys who can like really build off their offense particularly well uh, which all of which describes Hanato Moicano. Uh, if anything, <laughs> to a more proficient degree than someone like Ortega, Moicano would have kicked him up. So 
if that cross counter lands and Moicano doesn't die, or if that cross counter catches the shoulder, if that cross counter is a little bit off, does KZ win that fight? And I think most people who are aware of the way the matchup works would say no. Hanato Moicano is a better fighter. Uh, he's incredibly equipped to make uh, Zombie look really bad, and he just didn't because of uh, the early knockout. So that's that's the closest he'll get to a fluke. In I've, my opinion. I've just remembered uh, an example of an actual like close to real life type of look in MMA. Yeah. Like uh, the second fight between uh, Fedor Emelianenko and uh, Big Nog that ended in, a, in an uh, accidental headbutt that uh, cut Fedor open. <laughs> oh yeah, there was that. Uh, wasn't that Tsuyoshi Kasaka too? Yeah, that was also a Tsuyoshi Kasaka fight where t- that uh, got stopped with the. The first one, the second one he got. Killed. Yeah, the first one. <laughs> the second one he he won decisively. The first fight he was also winning decisively, and then uh, he also got headbutted or had just it was a clash of heads, and uh, he got uh, sliced open. Uh, I mean, then again, that's also a pattern there. Because uh, Fyodor just basically has baby skin, <laughs> I guess. But, so. Yeah, that's. I think those are the kinds of things that you're gonna get with Dan's request, where there aren't real flukes, where like lightning strikes in the middle of the cage, but sometimes the better fighter loses, and it's just entropy. I think even beyond that, it's just there are matchups that are bad, and there are just moments that are bad. Like something like Zabit versus Cater, where I comfortably consider Cater a much more. Um, rounded five-round threat to elite fighters. He'd lose to Zabit in three rounds relatively consistently because Zabit's just a bad matchup over three rounds and an uncomfortable matchup generally. So it's not like a fluke that Zabit won. It's just the worst fighter being in a better position to win. Yeah. Where... Go ahead. Yeah, and... uh, Like, uh, as an example of uh, two really good fighters matching up and uh, slugging it out... Uh, where, for example, the uh, Justin Gaethje versus uh, Dustin Poirier fight, where you could argue, well, what if that uh, Dustin Poirier didn't catch Justin Gaethje on one leg and landed that uh, left-hand shot and uh, knocked him out? Or any other fight where something like that happened with that uh, that was competitive up until the finish. So, uh, basically what I'm trying to say is that uh, the traditional definition, definition of fluke doesn't really apply in MMA. Yeah. But that's what we've said in the beginning of the discussion. So. Yeah, I mean, even with someone like Poirier Gaethje, right? Like a lot of the people on our staff would argue that Gaethje is the better fighter. Um, even well, maybe even especially then, where like someone like um, I think Ryan and Danny uh, ahead of the uh, the Khabib fight, they're like, okay, well, Poirier might be a bad matchup for. Justin Gaethje, he's a really dynamic offensive boxer who can work around a guard, but that doesn't make him better overall because of the wrestling differential and just, you know, generally skill-wise, someone like Gaethje's probably going to do better um, than someone like Dustin Poirier on the feet. And I don't know if that's true, I'm not sure I agree, but it could be true. And if that's true, it doesn't necessarily mean that Gaethje wins a rematch with Dustin Poirier, but it does mean that Gaethje might win more matches in a round robin. Like, that's the interesting thing is that people say styles make fights before a fight as an excuse to pick their favorite fighter. And after <laughs> the fight, if you say that the worst fighter won, they get all up in a huff, which, like, one's a corollary of the other, right? Like, you can't say styles make yeah. fights and then act like the better fighter wins all the time because then styles don't make fights. It's just the better fighter wins all the time. <laughs> <laughs> like, what does styles make fights mean? 
if it doesn't mean one guy can be overall better but lose to someone who's more equipped to win the type of fight that they're able to enforce. Like, that's... I, I brought up Zabit Cater before. It's exactly the thing. Like, Calvin Cater is deeper in the pocket than Zabit is anywhere. But Zabit can enforce a fight that's outside the pocket where Calvin is incredibly uncomfortable. And sure, that had the three-round thing, but it's also the truth that Zabit's just a lot more equipped to win that kind of fight. So even if Zabit's not as deep, he wins the fight. And if you say that Zabit's the worst fighter who won the fight, that's accurate. But it's also something that will make people really mad because, hey, he won the fight. Yeah, and once again, I think if, uh, for example, if uh, this hypothetical happens where Max Holloway moves back up to lightweight, actually, like, fills out... Uh, he has an argument. He has a, a path to victory against Dustin Poirier once again in, in, uh, in, in the third fight. And then, if he beats Dustin, be, beats Dustin Poirier and then meets Justin Gagey, I, I think I, I'd rather I'd rather favor Justin Gagey in this matchup. But in this particular matchup, just purely on the way because of the dynamics of the uh, purely because of the interplay between uh, between their styles. Yeah, and I mean. That's, it's just the kind that's of, what, yeah, that's what styles make fight make make fights really means. It's just different styles play differently off each other. Not that, uh, well, not whatever it is that uh, most MMA fans think it means. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like this has turned into kind of a different discussion, but I think it's relevant because the worst fighter winning a fight isn't necessarily a fluke. It's just something that can happen depending. Like you kind of have to appraise it uh, based on how the fight was going, A, and B, whether it was won in a replicable way or a not particularly replicable way. Like, I think most people, not most people, I think some people, if you could argue that someone like Jose Aldo is the best fighter of all time, uh, then Conor McGregor is by definition worse. And there are a lot of people who would say Conor McGregor wins that fight every time, which is uh, like a decent case because Conor McGregor is an uncomfortable style matchup, which would make that a Styles make fights thing. It wouldn't be a fluke. It would just be a bad matchup. On the other yeah. hand, you could also say Conor McGregor deals with kicks badly, and Conor McGregor has a cardio problem, and that fight would go Aldo's way most of the time. In which case, it becomes closer to a fluke in an MMA sense. So, it's there's gray area here, and I think we've come up with a couple fights that are closer to flukes than bad matchups. Like I don't think someone like Frankie Edgar's a bad matchup for Prime Chad Mendes. He just won the fight in a weird way, but. It's it's bizarre. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, it reminds me of uh, of our discussion that we've had on uh, bad game plans in MMA, and uh, what we realized is that uh, most cases are not really bad game plans or bad implementations of game plans, but just having no, no game yeah. plan. <laughs> this is kind of kind of a similar situation to that one, I think. Yeah, I mean. It's like, like basically, whenever you hear someone say, "Oh, this outcome is a fluke," usually not a fluke. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think it's, for instance, one thing that people considered a fluke at the time was Peter Yan versus Jimmy Rivera, the two knockdowns, where you know Jimmy Rivera was like winning the minutes fairly narrowly. And then Peter Young set up the knockdowns with like these shifts and cutting off the cage. Yeah, and, and then people up. 
And a lot of betters were like, hey, Jimmy Rivera won many of the minutes in this fight, maybe even most of the minutes, but he lost yeah, to Oh, he clearly. outlanded Yan, and then Yan just basically won on the knockdowns. This shouldn't count as a victory or whatever. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, it wasn't necessarily a case where Yan won the minutes, but it's also not a case where Yan didn't set those shots up in a way that he won the fight. <laughs> he was winning the fight. Exactly. He wasn't trying to win the minutes, he was trying to win the fight. That's the difference. Exactly. So I think that's uh, enough for that. Thank you, Dan, for the question. Uh, it was a really fun one to talk about. Uh, if Ed didn't have the post-vaccine uh, sick, I think he'd have really enjoyed talking about it too, so maybe we'll bring uh, it up. Yeah, I think, uh, well, it doesn't mean that we can't, that we can't revisit this uh, topic in the future at some point. Yeah, I mean, if Kevin Gastelum beats Robert Whitaker, however he does it, it is a fluke. <laughs> so... With that, uh, go visit our Patreon. Uh, $3 lets you see everything. Anything more lets you ask for stuff. So give that a shot. If you enjoyed our talk about uh, what Dan suggested, then uh, you can ask for stuff, and we'll talk about it here if it's an MMA thing. And we have several teams that will talk about your stuff for other sports. So give that a shot. Uh, visit our website. Go check out our affiliate deals. Uh, check out the rest of the podcast. Check out uh, Tangry Dome from Iggy. And uh, the recap that he does, that he's started relatively recently, and it's really good. Um, anything else? Follow us on Twitter. Um, ah, oh, yeah. Uh, Ed uh, has done a resume review on uh, yes. Bobby Knuckles. Yeah, That's you should important. go watch that. Yeah. Um, the resume review is probably one of the best series that we've done on Patreon, uh, where Ed and sometimes someone else watches a bunch of fights from someone and goes over how good the win is. So it's a really unique way of looking at it. And uh, I think anyone who's gotten it's, this far uh, in the podcast most, would enjoy it. It's, it's the most reliable way of evaluating fighters. Just watch the fights. Just sure. look at how look at how good the opponents are. So if you're interested in that, and you should be, go and yeah. check it out. So uh, that's it. Uh, thank you for joining me, Eddie. And Bobby Knuckles, yeah. bless. See you later.